Hey, Mercy Church, one of my joys, one of my favorite things about our church is uh, the, how we have so many good teachers, really gifted teachers of God's Word, and one of those is going to be preaching God's Word to us this morning. Joey Schwartz is our campus pastor at our Providence Road campus, and he is going to be bringing the Word to us this morning. He's already shared his message with me and some others, and man, I just, it is so timely, and I'm so excited for it. So Joey, why don't you come on up? And you lead us, and let's hear from God's Word. Hey, well, good morning, Mercy Church. It is a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, in the midst of all of this isolation, probably much like you, me and my wife are trying to figure out how to fill this time. And from time to time, we've dipped into a show or two. And man, in the mixed bag, that is 2020 Netflix. I do have to say that I'm glad that we're not in isolation in 2005, because about 15 years ago, elementary school Joey would have had to endure daytime infomercials. I don't know if you remember these, but back in the day, they'd run all throughout the day. I know whenever we'd have a snow day or get off, and they'd always show a before and after. And as I grew up, I, I learned to be skeptical about these infomercials. But man, back then, when I was 10 or 12, I thought if I had Bowflex and OxyClean and Life Alert, my life was set. But then as I, I kept going in life, I think I, I grew to see that a lot of these before and after pictures were fabricated, that they were filtered, that they were touched up so that these companies could sell me something for $19.99 plus shipping and handling. And you see, what we're going to be doing this morning as we get into this text is I want to show you a before and after, but there is no fabrication. There's no filter and we're not selling anything. It's undeniable, and there's no other explanation. In Acts chapter 9, I'm going to show you the story of a man named Saul and his life transformation before being a murderer, after being a missionary. There's no other explanation besides Jesus. See, this is our one simple point this morning. One look at Jesus changes everything. Just one look at the real Jesus as he is will change your life. And if you are a believer in Jesus and you've been experiencing discouragement, isolation, loneliness, despair in this season, you need to hear this. You need to hear that the same Jesus that encounters Saul on Damascus Road can encounter you where you are today. And if you're on this, uh, on this page because someone sent you a link, maybe it's your mom and you didn't want to feel guilty by avoiding the link, or maybe uh, you just didn't have anything better to do with your time, so you logged in. If that's you, and you don't care about Jesus, you're angry or apathetic, I want to tell you that maybe this morning you're in the perfect position to look, to encounter the grace of God and be changed forever. And I can say that confidently to you this morning, because I'm not going to just talk about Saul, a historical figure. This is my story too. I'm here to tell you that in my life and so many people's lives, one look at Jesus changes everything. So let's go ahead and dive in Acts chapter 9. I know we're in a weird situation. Some of you guys are all alone. Some of you have toddlers running around the coffee table right now. However you are experiencing God's word this morning, I believe Jesus is still on the throne. His word is still living and active, and God has a word for you this morning. So let's begin in verse 1. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against 
the disciples of the Lord. Let me stop right there because Luke, the author, says still. It's because he's brought up Saul before. Uh, Earlier in the narrative of Acts, Saul actually approves of the martyrdom of Stephen. And elsewhere, we know that Saul was a Pharisee. He's one of the most strict observers of the law among Judaism, and he was a fierce enemy of the gospel, trying to destroy it wherever he could. And right here, this comes after the first martyr of Christianity is killed, Stephen, and Saul was right there approving it. And uh, Luke goes on and he says, he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. You see, here's what Luke is getting after right now. After this martyrdom where Saul approved of the execution of Stephen, Saul isn't second-guessing himself. He's not wrestling with his conscience, wondering whether Stephen was right, whether Jesus was Lord, whether he made the right decision to persecute the people of God and the church. No, it says that Saul was still breathing threats. He's still breathing murder against the church. He is fully set on taking down God's people. In fact, what it's saying here is that he not only wanted to eradicate the followers of the way, that was an early name for Christians, from Jerusalem, he wanted to go outside of Jerusalem and take them out wherever they are. And it says that he traveled from Jerusalem to Damascus. This was about 150 miles, a week-long journey. And it says that he's at the very end of his journey to Damascus, which this is what this means. Get this. Saul woke up day after day after day for a whole week and said, yep, I'm going to keep going to Damascus. Yep, I'm going to keep going to Damascus. His heart was set and he's approaching the gates, his destination of destruction right here. See what Jesus does. Now, as he was on his way, he approached Damascus and this is what happens. Suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. See, right here, Saul isn't moving toward Jesus when Jesus finds him. In fact, he's running as hard as you possibly can away from Jesus when he finds him. And this is the story really of every single Christian. See, Christianity is not that we try to get ourselves together on the straight and narrow, and then Jesus gives us a helping hand. Christianity is that we were dead in our sins, and then Jesus gives us a resurrection. This is what Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 5 in Ephesians 2 says that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. Romans 5 says that God did not demonstrate his love for you when you were right but when you are sinners. This is the story of every Christian, not just Saul's, but everyone who's been brought to Christ. And here's our first point this morning. Jesus doesn't need you to be trending up to transform you. He doesn't need you to be trending up to be on the path of improvement toward him for him to take you from the grave and pull you out. He actually is a resurrector. He's going to come and find you in your death and pull you out. I know that so many of us, we treat Jesus like he's a personal trainer. See, a personal trainer, we have to initiate. We need to sign up. 
Because we want to get spiritually fit. And when we show up, Jesus takes us in and he'll work with us. But ultimately, we got to be the people who put in the work. And he gives us a program. We leave, we do the program, and we do the right things. And as we do the program that the spiritual director gives us, we'll come more and more to his image. We often treat Jesus like he's a personal trainer. But what the scripture says is that Jesus isn't a personal trainer. He's a resurrector. He brings us not from needing help. He brings us out of the grave. And guys, dead people, they don't have a plan B at that point. I've never seen anyone in a coffin who says, hey, I'm going to try another route. When you're in the coffin, you have no other way out but a resurrection. And this is what Jesus supplies to Saul. So if you're at a place where you feel like, gosh, I'm, I feel like I have to sustain my devotional life in order for Jesus to love me, what I want to remind you is, if Jesus loved you when you were dead, why do you think it's your devotion that is keeping his love for you? Why do you think it's you taking steps toward him when he ran after you at the very first? And if you are so far from Jesus right now that it's just unthinkable that he might reach out to you and save you, I need you to see this story and see you might be the perfect person for him to reach. Because through him bringing you out of the grave, he demonstrates his resurrection power for the glory of his name. Jesus doesn't need you to be trending up to transform you. Let's dive back into the story. So Saul comes out of that encounter and he sees Jesus and it blinds him. He can't see, but the Lord tells him to go to Damascus. And as he's in Damascus and fasting and praying without seeing, the Lord gives him a vision of a man named Ananias who comes to him and prays for him that he may be healed. Now, meanwhile, this man, Ananias in Damascus, gets a vision from Jesus to go and speak to Saul. And uh, this is what Ananias says when the Lord calls him to go and speak to Saul and lay his hands on him. This is verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So you got to understand this position that the Lord has put Ananias in. So Ananias knows that if Saul finds him, he's going to deliver him over to be killed. So for Ananias to go to Saul as a known believer is essentially a suicide mission, to give himself over to death. So we can at least understand why Ananias raises his hand and asks a question of, uh, asks a question of the Lord of why he would actually need to go to this man, Saul. It's understandable why he'd have some questions, but continue in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. One side note before we get back to the story of Saul, I think it's wild here how the Lord speaks to Ananias. And right here, he could have completely assured Ananias by giving him the whole picture. He could have told Ananias, hey, no, 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 just so you know, I encountered Saul on Damascus Road. I've already humbled him. You're good. But that's not what the Lord says. He says, Ananias, go. He says, rise and go and obey. And this is how the Lord works whenever he calls his people from Abraham through the rest of the scriptures. He doesn't give us the whole picture. He gives us the promise of his presence, and then he calls us to go without seeing the picture. 
He doesn't show us the fulfillment. He tells us to run and rise and go and obey. And maybe that's you right now for a ministry the Lord is calling you into, for a person the Lord is calling you to speak to. You may not know what God is doing in your life, and the Lord probably isn't going to tell you. He's just going to tell you to speak, and you need to trust him that he's gone before you and prepared a way. But another thing to notice, back to the story of Saul, is that this is absolutely unthinkable that Jesus, first of all, would call Saul to be his chosen instrument. That alone is unthinkable because Saul's enemy number one. For Jesus to take a persecutor of the church and make him a, pro a proclaimer of the gospel is unthinkable. But for Jesus to take a, a persecutor and make him a proclaimer of the gospel to the Gentiles is even more un unimaginable. You see, from the beginning, God promised to the prophet Abraham that he was going to extend his name through Abraham to all the nations, including Gentiles, non-Jews. But this promise had not yet been, been fulfilled in the church. From Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 9, the church is almost exclusively Jews and Jewish converts. So for the Lord to tell Ananias that Saul was going to be a missionary to the Gentiles, he doesn't even have a frame of reference for what that might look like. But for Saul to be a Pharisee to go to the Gentiles, this is what must have just blown Ananias' mind because the Pharisees were the ones, again, who observed the law to the strictest point. They obeyed every dot and iota. They tithed mint and dill. They wouldn't go near a dirty, unclean cup, much less go near an unclean Gentile sinner. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to send Saul to actually bring them into the kingdom. If you want to get what this would look like, imagine five years from now, Roy Williams announces his successor of UNC men's basketball team. And guess who it is? It's Coach K. This is... It's that unimaginable that a Pharisee would go and proclaim the gospel to Gentiles, and yet this is exactly what Jesus does. This is our second point. Jesus doesn't need you to be a top candidate to choose you. He doesn't need you to be a top candidate to choose you. This is what 1 Corinthians 1 says. It says that not many of you were wise, not many of you were powerful, not many of you were noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It makes no sense to us that Jesus would give Saul this ministry, but when you look at the way that he gives a ministry, it starts to make sense in our mind. He says, he's going to carry my name to the Gentiles. And I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, if Jesus was after our glory, he would give us ministries that were in areas of our comfort and in areas of our strength. But because it's all about the name of Jesus, he often gives ministries to the weak. He gives us ministries where we're not strong. He calls us to go where we're not comfortable so that we don't depend on our natural strength, but on his supernatural power. See, Jesus doesn't need you to be a top candidate. In fact, if you think you're a top candidate for a ministry, Jesus will probably do what he did to the apostle Saul. He'll graciously humble you so that you'll learn, even in a ministry of strength, that as Paul found, the apostle Paul would later find in 2 Corinthians 12, that Jesus's grace is sufficient for you.
See, when you look at the ministries that Jesus um, gives you, it's not always going to align with your strength, but it's always going to make you lean on his supernatural power. Jesus doesn't need you to be a top candidate to choose you. He's going to call you into the ministry just like he did to Saul. Now let's continue in the narrative in Acts 9. Ananias, he goes to, he goes to the apostles, or he goes to Saul, and he uh, delivers the message. He comes to him and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. I love this point in this whole story. Saul set out from Jerusalem with the intention of going to the Damascus synagogues. His intention was to go and deliver letters so that he could bring Christians back from Damascus to Jerusalem so that they could be uh, killed. And yet uh, Saul was exactly right when he left Damascus. He was going to go to the synagogues in Damascus, but instead of delivering papers to persecute Christians, he was going to be delivering the good news of Jesus when he showed up. This is the kind of transformation that Jesus can do. In a moment, he changes it so that everyone at the synagogue is saying, I knew Saul was going to show up, but I thought he was going to show up to arrest the Christians, not to preach Christ. You see, what Jesus is doing right here, he's using Saul and his contrasted background of darkness to shine the great light of the gospel. Because everyone sees the evil and the intention of Saul coming in, and now they're seeing the contrast of, look at what Jesus has done. Look at what Jesus has done. Saul, he doesn't know everything right now. This isn't the same man who's going to be the Apostle Paul, who's going to write nearly half of the New Testament. He only knows a few things, and yet his message is still just as effective. Look at what Saul says in verse 20. He says, he is the son of God. This is all I know right now. I know that Jesus is the son of God, and that's enough for me to proclaim it to you, and enough for people to be saved through Saul. See, this is our third point. Jesus doesn't need you to know everything to work through you. Jesus doesn't need you to know everything to work through you. You don't have to be a religious expert. In fact, since the beginning, Jesus hasn't been using religious experts. He's been using humble children who will lean on his power and wisdom to speak. Think about the disciples. They were those who actually fled from Jesus at his arrest. But in Luke 24, they're minds are open to understand the scriptures. And then in Acts 2, they're filled with the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel. It was really simple. They just looked at Jesus and they were filled with the Spirit. It's, a th- it's the same thing of Stephen who preached the gospel earlier in the books of, book of Acts. It says that he confounded them with his wisdom. Why? Because he was full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He looked at Jesus and he was filled with the Spirit. And this is the same thing that Paul has, Saul has. It's, in fact, the only thing he has right now 
is he looked at Jesus and he was filled with the Spirit. And yet, that was more than enough to proclaim the gospel. You don't have to take a seven-week evangelism course, although training is good. You don't have to read a systematic theology textbook, although studying theology is good. If you know that Jesus is the Son of God and you've seen him and you've been filled with the Spirit, you can tell anyone this good news and God can work through you. You don't have to know everything for God to work through you. In fact, sometimes in this simple message, in the simple message that even children can receive, God does the most work. I love what John Piper says. He says, the people who have made the most durable difference in the world are not those who have mastered many things, but those who have been mastered by a few things. If you are captured, compelled by just the beauty of who Jesus is, you can tell others about him. In fact, I know that Right now, maybe you're thinking, I want to tell people about him. I want to tell my coworkers. I want to tell my friends, but I literally can't go anywhere. I am in my home and I can't go anywhere else. I want to maybe encourage you right now to use social media and use email, which is something that you can do to proclaim Jesus. Because a lot of people who may be following you, a lot of family members who you may be connected with, maybe they don't know what Jesus means to you yet. And you need to write it out and publish it. Put it online, put it on your social media accounts, email this out. This is the crazy email. You know those crazy emails you get from Uncle Rob and Aunt Karen? This is the the crazy email that's worth it. To send an email about how much Jesus means to you and to say, I looked at Jesus and it changed everything. I want to challenge you to do that this morning, to proclaim Jesus. You don't have to know everything. Just tell them what happened. I was blind, now I see. I was lost, now I'm found. I was dead, now I'm alive. And this is what Jesus is doing in my life. If you proclaim that simple message God can work through you to those who need to hear it most. You don't have to know everything. But if you think that, if you hear this and you're saying, well, I'd love for God to work through me if only he'll do what he did to Saul. You know, if God wants to come and he wants to just capture me and force me and send me out, and if he wants to really do work in my life, well, he'll do that. Well, Notice the point that I say. I didn't say that Jesus was going to work for you in this case. I said that Jesus is going to work through you. See, in our salvation, Jesus works for us. He does everything necessary to save us from our sins. But in our sanctification and in our ministry, Jesus works in us as we work out our salvation. That's what Philippians 2 says. Jesus doesn't just resurrect us. He does to us what he did to Saul. He puts within us his resurrection power. He doesn't just resurrect us. He resurrects us, and then he says, rise. See, if you really have seen Jesus, if you've really looked at him and been filled with the Spirit, you're not going to sit back and wait for God to work. You're going to get up and rise and obey. Even if, like Ananias, you don't see how your work is going to end up, you're going to trust Jesus and proclaim him even if you don't see. Rise. Maybe that's God's word to you this morning. Rise in the ministry he's called you to. Rise in the person he's calling you to speak to. Rise and kill the sin he's calling 
calling you to kill, not because God's coming and doing it for you, but because you see Jesus, you're filled with the Spirit, and you're compelled by his love. Isn't this beautiful that God isn't out to make puppets who he's carrying along to force to do his will. He is adopting humble children who are compelled by his love. You don't have to know everything for God to work through you. Maybe you hear this this morning and you're saying, I don't even really want God to transform me. I don't even want God to choose me. I don't even want God to work through me. In fact, I'm doing fine. And also, I've, I've kind of seen Jesus. You're telling me to look at Jesus, and I've already seen him. I heard about him growing up. I've seen him in the movies and the TV shows. I get the gist. I've heard the Bible stories. Well, Saul was fine too, and Saul had heard about Jesus too. And yet Jesus, in an instant, changed him. And you know, that was my story too. I was fine. I had heard about Jesus. This was my story. Just like Saul, I gave, I gave myself to drugs, to partying, thinking that these pleasures would satisfy me. And, and actually, in the days leading up to when Jesus just totally rocked my world, I wasn't wrestling with my sins. I didn't have an uneasy conscience. I was going my own way, just like Saul, doing what I thought was best with my own life. And I was perfectly content with continuing to do things my own way. And I thought I'd gotten the gist. I'd gone to church for years and thought, you know, I've got the gist. But something happened to me on a Thursday night in July 2011. Is that I saw that my perception of Jesus was really a knockoff. My perception of Jesus was that he was a tag on. He was just a moral teacher who set an example. He was someone I could just identify with as part of my life. But when I was at my lowest, when I was at the gates of Damascus, Jesus came to me and he showed me a different kind of Jesus. Not the knockoff, but the name above every name. He showed me that he is Lord, that he's glorious, that he's beautiful, that he's satisfying, that if I thought I had life before him, the kind of life he gave me made the old life look like death. It made the old life look like it was, it didn't have any taste, any flavor because of the refreshment and nourishment that he gave to me. He showed me that when he died on the cross, he wasn't just setting an, a moral example so that I would follow in his path. He was dying for my sins. He was taking on all the sins that I had accrued against him. I slapped him in the face and he got on his knees and washed my feet. He gave himself for me. I saw that he was the Lord and he not only died for me, but this great Lord raised from the grave. And now the Savior who had died for me, I could know him. I didn't need to study him as a historical figure. I could talk to him and be with him and walk with him as a friend. And in that moment, Jesus showed me that I had it all wrong. I hadn't seen Jesus. I hadn't looked at Jesus. Because when I looked at Jesus, the Lord, I couldn't help but follow his way. I couldn't help but run and rise and go and give everything to follow him. And maybe that's you this morning. See, Saul, he was so fixated on his way of life. 
He was so fixated on looking around and finding the Christians that he could to persecute. He was so fixated on obeying the law, on trying to become a perfect Pharisee. He was looking around and he couldn't pause and stop and sit and look up. And as soon as Jesus brought him down to the ground and stopped everything in his life so that he could look up, he saw that Jesus was Lord. He saw that there was life and life abundant to be found in Jesus. Now, I don't, I'm not claiming to know what the Lord is doing with this pandemic that's going around the world, but I'm just talking about you. What if the Lord has been using this season to take you who maybe are so busy and so caught up with your schedule and your plans and your way of life and you've been looking around and fixated on how to do life your own way and what if Jesus in this moment right here is calling you to sit and look up? One look at Jesus changes everything. What look at Jesus changes everything? Would you look If you're lonely this morning and you don't have anyone around you and you're not sure why you're alive, why you're living, what your purpose is, would you look at Jesus? Look at the one who made you, who formed you, and who knows you by name. Just like he came and he said, Saul, Saul, he knows your name. Would you look at him? And when you look, everything will change. I wanna lead you now and do an exercise that actually led to me being saved by Jesus. It was uh, the exercise that uh, this summer camp had me do way back. And uh, it led to me being silent enough to actually hear from Jesus and see him. And it's really simple. I don't have 10 prayer points for you. I don't have an extended exercise or anything like that. I just want you to be silent for, a, for just a minute. And then I want you to just talk to Jesus. I want you to talk to him. This living Jesus who took a persecutor of the church and transformed him into a proclaimer of the gospel, he's alive. He's with you. And he's available for you to talk to him. If you're far from him, would you look up and ask the same question that Saul asked, who are you, Lord? And he'll say, I'm Jesus. He will reveal himself to you. And if you're already a believer in Jesus and you're discouraged, you need strength, would you look at the same Jesus who met you when you were a sinner and look at him again and receive the grace of God afresh? I'm gonna give you a few minutes to do that and then I'll close us out in prayer.
Father, you are gracious. You're so gracious to come to us and in mercy often give us a hard word. Jesus, you went to Saul and you said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I'm sure that stung in the moment, but it was that hard word that was a mercy because it enabled Saul to see that his ways were wrong and that you had the way to life. And so I wanna pray for those, maybe who are far from you, who in those moments of silence heard a hard word, that they've been opposing you, that they've been hardening themselves against you, that they've been turning their own way. Maybe it's your children even who have not gone to you and sought you and sat at your feet in a while and they feel esteemed. I pray, God, that you would show them the sting of Christ, that Christ endured the nails on the cross. He endured the pain of wrath. And he rose from the grave, defeating sin, defeating death, so that we would not have to feel the sting of our sin, but we could feel the joy of your salvation. Oh God, would you rescue the sheep, rescue yours, and encourage your children this morning. I love you, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done. I pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, we're gonna be continuing now in worship by singing an old hymn uh, called Be Thou My Vision. And that looking that you just did uh, to Jesus in those few moments, I want you to keep doing that as we sing. I want you to stand and sing out loud to Jesus because maybe there's no one around you, but Jesus is with you and he hears your singing. And as you sing, Be Thou My Vision, I want you to remember that that is continuing a trajectory of worship that can happen through all your life. That day in, day out, without ceasing, you can keep your eyes on Jesus. You can keep looking, keep seeing your Lord and continue to be changed by his glorious face. Let's sing together.